0: Our scripture reading today will come from three different places, uh, and you can find the scripture reading on the back of the insert in your bulletins. Uh, Our text is from Judges chapter 1, the first seven verses, uh, but in the context of Judges 1, I'll be reading a portion of Genesis 15, Deuteronomy 7, and then from Judges 1. The passage from Genesis 49 at the bottom of that sheet I'll be reading and referring to in the sermon. But for now, I'll start with Genesis 15, uh, 13 to 16, Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 5, and then Judges 1, the verses 1 to 7. Let's pay careful attention to the public reading of God's holy and infallible and inerrant word, Judges 15, beginning at verse 13. I'm sorry, Genesis 15, beginning at verse 13. And then from Deuteronomy 7, beginning at verse 1, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire." Then from Judges 1, beginning at verses 1 to 7. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I, likewise, will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. That's the reading of God's word today from Judges chapter 1, Genesis 15, and Deuteronomy 7. I encourage you to follow along today as God's word is proclaimed. On the outline, the front side of that outline is today's sermon outline. Well, congregation of our Lord Jesus, whenever we hear in the news about another nation or a ruler of the world that has committed or exercised a genocide against others, the nations of the world respond with a cry out for justice, and a call for those who have been responsible for it or acted in it to be punished justly. A modern dictionary definition of the word genocide goes like this the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. And so when we come to an Old Testament text, the books of Joshua and Judges, and even what we read from Deuteronomy 7 this morning, sometimes people will read about what happened to the Canaanites and wonder if God ordered a genocide against the Canaanite people. And so to explain it, sometimes you'll hear people say, I can't believe God would do that. I can't believe God would give a command to kill the Canaanites. God is a God of love. And so they'll reject this portion of the Bible and sometimes say, it just didn't happen. Perhaps you've had someone say something like that to you. I have on multiple occasions. But as conservative Christians, we believe that the Bible is the infallible and the inerrant Word of God, and that everything that God tells us in the Scriptures took place in biblical history. And so, if it's true that God commanded the Israelites to devote the Canaanites to destruction, how then are we to understand an Old Testament passage like the one we have before us today from the book of Judges? The answer starts first with an acknowledgement that genocide today is wrong and sinful and that any ruler that gives such an order or any nation that carries it out should be punished justly. But then to understand what's taking place in the books of Joshua and Judges and God's command in Deuteronomy 7, the key to interpreting or understanding these Old Testament books is to interpret them in the context of God's Redemptive historical salvation plan. God's redemptive plan means his salvation plan that started in Genesis 3.15 and was fulfilled in Christ Jesus and someday to be completed when he returns. Historical means that we understand this salvation plan took place over thousands of years from the very creation of the world and Adam's fall into sin until the Lord returns. We have to understand, then, the books of Joshua and Judges in the context of that plan. And that means we have to interpret our text today vertically from God's perspective. For those who reject it or want to say it didn't happen, they're looking at it horizontally. They're looking at it from an earthly perspective. They're looking at it from their own perspective and judging God and what took place in Scripture. But we have to understand this text and what God has commanded and what took place from a vertical perspective. And once you understand our text from God's perspective, from God's vertical perspective, you will better understand what God was doing at that time in redemptive history and also know how believers in Christ Jesus today can identify with these verses and God's saving grace. Don't read these verses or think of these verses and say, well, that's Old Testament. That only happened back then. That doesn't happen today. Or what took place isn't about me today. God's Word is speaking to his people for all of generations. And what we see in the Old Testament shadows what we know and believe in the New Testament. And so let's start today with point A on your outlines. God's judgment for the Canaanites. They remember how we started out our sermon series on the book of Judges two weeks ago with God's two promises to Abraham or Abram in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God called Abram out of the land of Ur and he gave to him two promises. The first promise in Genesis 12 is that Abram would know that his descendants would become a great nation. God's promise. A multitude would come from his offspring. And a second promise that God gave to Abraham is that those descendants, his offspring, would be given the land of Canaan where they could dwell and God could dwell with them. And then later in Genesis 15, God revealed to Abram something even more about what would happen when his descendants came to the land, and God's promise to him was about to be fulfilled. I put those verses on the back of your outlines this morning. Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16. In those verses, God reveals to Abram the sin of the Amorites would someday reach completion. Now look at those verses and how they flow, beginning at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That is the offspring of Abram. You know what the book of Genesis tells us, how Jacob went down to Egypt because of a famine. Jacob had 12 sons. The 12 sons of Jacob became the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abram. and They would live in the land of Egypt and they would be in slavery for 400 years, afflicted for 400 years. Then God goes to tell Abram in verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God would send the ten plagues upon the Egyptians, the beginning of the book of Exodus. God would deliver the people through the blood of the Passover lamb. They would be freed from slavery, and the Egyptians would welcome them to leave after the firstborn of Egypt died, they were giving them jewelry and their possessions. Then in verses 15 to 16, we read God tells Abram, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. God is telling Abram, He will not see this all fulfilled in his lifetime. But then verse 16, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The fourth generation, 400 years, your offspring will come back here to this land that I've shown you, the land of Canaan. And the iniquity, it says in verse 15, of the Amorites at that time will be complete. And so the last verse, part of verse 15 is the key to understanding God's judgment upon the Canaanites. At the end of that verse, God told Abram that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, but it will be complete when they come back here. Another translation translates the wording in English this way, For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure, its completion, its full measure. What does that mean? It means that God is vertically looking down from heaven, just as He did before the time of the flood, and he will evaluate the sin of the Canaanites just as he evaluated the sin of the people of the world in Genesis 6, verse 5, before the flood. In that verse, Genesis 6, 5, before the flood, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw it from heaven, and God sent his judgment upon them in the flood to destroy the world. And now God is telling Abram that again, he's looking down from heaven. And 400 years into the future, he will see that the sins of the people who live in the land of Canaan, specifically the Amorites, their sin will someday be complete. Their sin will, as one translation puts it, reach its full measure. And when that time comes, God will bring his vertical judgment upon them for their sins. And then just three chapters later in the book of Genesis, God will show Abram how he looks down from heaven at the sins of the people of the world. And in that time of redemptive history, sometimes will determine to bring his vertical judgment upon them. You know the biblical account in Genesis 18. God tells Abram that he is about to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because the sin of those two cities had become too, the wording is, grave in Genesis 18. That's bad. So bad. In the words of Genesis 15, sin had reached its full measure in those cities. God had determined he would have to destroy those cities. And so Abram pleads with God, starting with 50. Lord, if there's only 50 righteous people, would you not destroy the city? And God says, okay, if there's 50 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. He goes all the way down, Abram, to 10 pleading, if there's just ten righteous people in those cities, would you not destroy them? But God could not find ten righteous people in the cities. And God sent fire down from heaven to destroy those cities because the sin had reached its full measure. And that brings us then to the judgment role that God had in that time of redemptive history for the people of Israel. Point A2 on your outlines God commanded Israel to bring his vertical judgment. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 5, God instructs the people this way. Again, I put those verses on the back of your outlines this morning. Deuteronomy 7, beginning at verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. In Deuteronomy 7, God is commanding the offspring of Abraham, the people of Israel, that when the Lord brings them into the promised land of Canaan, that they are to take possession of, the Lord will clear away the nations before them. Chapter 7, verse 1, The Lord is doing this. God is going first. And God will give them into their hands so they, the people of God, will defeat them. Chapter 7, verse 2, And then they must devote them to complete destruction. Why? In Genesis 15, God said that it would be His judgment For the sins of the Canaanites, as their sin had reached its full measure, just like in the time before the flood, just like in the time before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God would vertically look down from heaven and determine that the sins of the people of the land of Canaan should be judged for their wickedness and sin, and that God would lead the Israelites to carry out his vertical judgment against them. So why did God give this command in the Old Testament? Because our Creator God, the Bible tells us, is not only a God of grace and love and forgiveness and the God of salvation, but He is also a God of justice. That's what He saves us from. And throughout the Old Testament, when the sins of a people are ripe for judgment, He brings down His judgment and wrath upon them. And for the offspring of Abraham, it was a time in which he was to give his people the promised land where he could dwell with them. And at that time in the history of redemption, that time now is over. God does not have a promised land on earth like Israel today. And so, as we saw in the first sermon in the New Testament, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, God now dwells with his people in his church. But God goes on then to give further reason in Deuteronomy 7, the last part of verse 2 to verse 5. You shall not make, sorry, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. In these verses, God is warning his people that if they do not devote the Canaanites to destruction, the people of Israel would be tempted and would intermarry with them. And soon they would be serving the false gods of the Canaanite people. And God, then, would judge them. Do you see how all this fits into the history of God's overall redemptive plan? Do you see how the Old Testament is the shadow of the New Testament and how God's salvation and judgment, it's foreshadowing that is still to come? You see, all of us, everyone that lives in this world is born in sin. We are sinners and we are all worthy of God's wrath and judgment for our sin. And if it wasn't for the fact that God in His grace chose us, called us out of all the people in the world to know Him, we would too be worthy of His wrath and judgment. God called us, He chose us like He did Abram, and God sent our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come down to earth, from heaven to earth, Suffer God's vertical wrath and judgment on the cross for our sins, so that by his death and resurrection, all of God's people in Christ Jesus have been freed from slavery to sin and death. We saw in our first sermon how in Galatians 3, we read in the New Testament how if you are in Christ Jesus, you are Abraham's offspring. Those verses from Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the offspring of Abraham. They are God's people today. We also saw how the church then points to heaven in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10, Abraham, we're told, look to the land of promise. And when God showed him the land of Canaan, he looked forward to a city beyond that land. He knew it was a shadow of a city with foundations, whose designer and maker is God. He was looking for a city that was God's city in heaven. The New Testament land, the shadow of the New Testament pointing to heaven, the land of Jesus Christ. And now in the New Testament, with the coming of the Lord Jesus, we wait for the time in which the sins of the people of the world will reach its full measure. We wait for a time like the time before the flood. Genesis 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and God sent his judgment. The flood. On that day, the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth. And God's vertical judgment for the sins of his people fell upon the Savior when he came. And all those who do not know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, they will suffer God's wrath and judgment for their sins. And so those who know the Lord Jesus will be brought to salvation on that day and everlasting life. And with all of that in mind then, with all of that in mind, we now come to the book of Judges. And we keep that Old Testament shadow, salvation, judgment picture in mind. And the first thing we see in verse 1 is that there is a leadership transition taking place. A leadership transition. Verse 1, after the death of Joshua. So it starts out this book, Joshua is dead. The conquest era is over. And at the end of verse 1, the people of Israel having lost Joshua, not knowing who to look to to lead them, they do the right thing the people were told, inquire of the Lord. Joshua 1 verse 1, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites and fight against them? They've had a leader, Joshua, the clear leader, the Lord used to lead them into battle against the Canaanites. But now that Joshua is dead, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites and fight against them? Now remember, the people know they are in the promised land. And the people know that not all the Canaanites have been driven out. And so with the death of Joshua, they're asking the Lord, Who will now lead us? And the people started out doing the right thing. They asked the Lord. And the Lord's answer in verse 2 is that it will be the tribe of Judah. Verse 2 The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Do you see how the Lord is directing them to the next leader that God has chosen for them? The previous leader, Joshua, is dead. And when they ask, Who shall lead us further in God's salvation plan? It is now further to be revealed. They don't have the full picture yet. As God reveals his grace from the time of Genesis 3.15, that he will crush the head of the serpent. More and more of God's grace is revealed. With Abraham, we learn more about land where the people could dwell with God. We learn about descendants of Abraham. That would be descendants, his offspring, God's people, a nation in the New Testament, a church. In the book of Moses, with Moses we read further about the law, about the sacrifices, about salvation. But something more has yet to be revealed. What has yet to be revealed is that it will come. God's salvation will be led by a king. And notice God's answer then in verse 2, when the people ask the question, who shall lead us? Judah shall go up. Now on the back of your outlines this morning, I put... Another quote from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49 verse 10. In Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, Jacob is near death, Abraham's grandson. And God has Jacob pronounce blessings on each one of his son. And to his son Judah, God has Jacob pronounced the following blessing. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience of the peoples. The scepter, Genesis 49 verse 10, is referring to the king's scepter. The ruler's staff, Genesis 49 verse 10, is referring to the king. God had promised that the king of Israel would someday come from the tribe of Judah. Now, Jacob did not give this blessing to the oldest son, Reuben, or the third and, or second and third son, Simeon and Levi. God had determined that the king that God would send to lead his people would come from the tribe of Judah. And so when they ask, who shall lead us? God directs them to what he had already promised. A king would come from the tribe of Judah. And he would be a king that is after God's own heart. In the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, King David from the tribe of Judah will finally be the king that leads the armies of Israel against the Canaanites to bring them to rest in peace and deliver them from the Philistines. But the king from the tribe of Judah that God will send, that will fully save God's people, is a son of David, a son of God, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when in Judges 1, verse 1, the people inquire of the Lord, who shall go up first to fight for us against the Canaanites and fight against them? The Lord's answer is the tribe of Judah shall go up. And then look at the last part of verse 2 and the promise God gives. Behold, God says, I have given this land into his hand. You see what God is saying to the people at the end of verse 1. This land has been allotted to the tribe of Judah, the promised land. It's been allotted. God has already determined that this land would be given to the people of Judah. And so just like when the people approached Jericho and the walls came down, the victory has already been given to them. God has determined it. It doesn't matter the size of the army they face or the foe that they face. God has allotted that this part of the land would be given to the people of Judah and the victory is theirs. And yet, with all that is promised to them and all that is told to them from God's word, Judah fails to trust God. Instead of believing that God would give them the land, trusting his promises that God had promised, they look to Canaanites for how to fight. They look to the non-believers for how to go to war. That's Judah's failure before God. Because what does Judah do in verse 3? And Judah said to Simeon his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simon went with him. You see, Judah makes an alliance with another tribe, the tribe of Simeon. Now, from a horizontal perspective, from a battle strategy, from watching the Canaanites, an earthly perspective, this is a pretty good plan. Later today, if you look at a biblical map in the back of your Bibles that shows the allotted land of the tribes of Israel, you'll see that the tribe of Simeon is right next to the tribe of Judah. They're neighbors, And so it's true that Simeon, as the smallest tribe of all the 12 tribes, would need help to fight their battles. Judah needs a little help to fight their battles. And so they make an alliance and decide to fight together. Even though God has said, the land is given to you. You see, none of that strategy, none of that planning justifies the heart problem before God about what this battle plan shows. In verse 2, God said the people of Israel, the tribe of Judah, would lead the people in battle against the Canaanites, and God had given the lamb into their hands. This battle is won, it's yours. And yet before going up to battle, the tribes of Judah, even though they know that God has allotted this territory to them, what do they do? Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, they say to Simeon, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. Do you see how allotted to you is repeated twice? They know this territory has been allotted. That's what God said. It's going to be given to you. But they don't trust that God is going to give it to them. They don't trust God's promise that he will lead them. And the tribe of Judah decides they need to find some help on their own. They make an agreement with the tribe of Simeon. You help us, we'll help you. And where did they learn how to do such things? They had seen how the cities of the land of Canaan made alliances with one another to fight in battle. They'd make treaties, they'd make alliances. They had seen how the Canaanites and the Perizzites formed an alliance And now they have an army, we're told later in verses, of 10,000. And so without trusting what God had said to do the same, they do the same. And you say, well, what about believing and trusting God and His word and His promise? Why did they think they had to take matters into their own hands and come up with their own plan? Because they didn't trust God and His word and God's promise. And they learned from the Canaanites. And yet, point number two under point D on your outlines, God gives Judah the victory. In verse 4, Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Do you see what a large foe it was that they defeated? An army of 10,000 soldiers in that day in the land of Canaan? was a very, very large army for that day. Some could argue it's a very large fighting force even still today. Later in verse 7, Adonai Bezik will say that he defeated 70 kings with his army. This army was made up of trained fighters, and they had been victorious many times. And yet, verse 4 tells us, The Lord gave them an army that had defeated 70 kings. The Lord gave them into the hands of the tribe of Judah. Everything God had said was true, and they saw it and they experienced it. The land allotted to them was theirs. The battle was theirs. And yet, what did they do? In verse 5 we read, in verse 6, they apply Canaanite justice. Verse 5, they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek was hiding, you see. They searched him out. And once he was defeated, verse 6, he fled. But they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. The Lord gives them the victory, but do you see how they disobeyed the Lord in the victory? Deuteronomy 7, verse 2, God said, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. This is not genocide in today's definition. This is God's wrath and judgment for the sin of sinners. They deserve this, according to God who looks down from heaven. And yet instead of devoting the king to destruction, as God had said, they tortured Adonai Bezek. Well, where did they learn that from? They didn't learn it from God and His Word. Instead of exercising God's justice by devoting Him to destruction for His sin, as God said, they tortured Him by cutting off His thumbs and His big toes and letting Him live. And Adonai Bezek knows where they learned it from because the irony in verse 7 is that God points out to them and to all of us. What was exactly wrong? He lets Adonai Bazak tell us. Verse 7, Adonai Bazak said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. You see how God has him speak in verse 7. In verse 7, we're told that instead of God's justice, the tribe of Judah applied Canaanite justice. And King Adonai Bezek, who had been very successful in battle, a king who had defeated 70 kings. And then he cut off their thumbs and their big toes. And where did the people of Judah learn it from? They learned it from him. Now what else did Adonai Bezek say he did to the 70 kings? he would put them under his table to pick up the scraps like a dog. He would humiliate them and treat them like a dog. And then he even states at the end of Canaanite justice, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And that's Canaanite justice. But that's not God's justice. God's wages for sin and God's justice is death. And what did the people of Judah do? They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. You don't see that they put him to death. It just says that he died there. They brought him there with his, without his toes and thumbs and let him live, likely as Adonai Bezek treated those 70 kings, picking up scraps like a dog under their table, until he died. Canaanite justice. Do you see Judas' failure in our text today, Deuteronomy 7? You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them, Deuteronomy 7 verse 2. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. So you come to our text today, and you say to yourself, what was the matter with them? Why didn't they trust God and His promises that He would give them the allotted land? God had said it. Why did they believe it? Why did they look at an army of 10,000 people and just come up with their own plan? Why didn't they listen to His word and exercise God's justice and devote the king to destruction that God had said? Why didn't they listen to the warning to put out the temptation that was around them? How could they experience God's overwhelming victory and then so quickly disobey God and adopt Canaanite, justice. And then in the New Testament, you stop and you think and you look at your own heart. You know that you're a sinner and worthy of God's wrath and judgment, and you cry out to God, save me. You know from God's word that he has fulfilled his promise. For he's given you a king from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham. God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that God's vertical wrath for your sin fell upon Him at the cross. And like the demon-possessed man in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ has driven Satan out of your heart. And He's given you victory and promised you that someday eternal victory is yours over your sin. He's brought you into the land, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that the Bible tells you that all of that is true. And yet in your battle with the remaining sin in your heart, how easy it is for you not to trust in the King that God has given and sent, that He can give you rest and deliverance from your sin and instead come up with your own plan. And then in doing so, Instead of following God's plan, to put the death and the temptations around you that tempt you to sin. You allow the sin and temptation to sin around you, to live. And that was the failure of the tribe of Judah from the very first verses of the book of Judges. And so before you're too hard on them, you have to ask yourself, is that the failure in my heart? God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is your leader. God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has delivered you from the land of slavery, your slavery to sin and death, and given you salvation and eternal life. God's wrath that fell on the Canaanites, that's what you deserve for your sin as a sinner. But your king from the tribe of Judah, your king, son of David, son of God, took that wrath upon himself. You're saved from it. And now as you live in the land, as you face the temptations in this world around you, as you see what the Canaanites do, the non-believers do, you put your hope and trust, not yourself, your trust in him, that he is the one who can give you peace. He is the one who can give you rest. He is the one who in his power can bring you into his presence in peace, which is forevermore. Your hope is to trust him. Your hope is to live for him. Your hope is to find your strength in the victory that he's won. Amen. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you today for your word from the book of Joshua and your word from the book of Judges. For in these two books, we see your wrath and judgment upon sinners, And it drives us to our Savior's salvation. For we see, Lord, that He has saved us from sin and death. Your wrath fell upon Him on the cross. We rejoice, Lord, that because of Him, our King, we can know that salvation is ours. We can know that the victory over sin and death has been given unto us. But, Lord, we pray that You would help us to trust Him that, Lord, we would rely on him, not on our own plans, not our own scheming, not on our own flesh, but that in Christ Jesus we would have that victory and salvation and deliverance and know it and live it. We pray, Lord, that as we look to him, you would open our minds and hearts to see what sin around us, what temptation to sin must be devoted to destruction. Lord, we pray that we would love Christ more than the temptations which we're tempted to let live, but that in Christ Jesus we would know that victory and live out that victory and that, Lord, in Him we would have the rest, the peace that only He can give to enable us, Lord, to turn our lives, our hearts, our focus towards eternity forevermore. We pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.